For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is the Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. It's time to light up the jack-o'-lantern and turn up the radio. Go ahead and invite that nice zombie that's watching you through the crack in the window to come inside. It's time for the 15th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. Author and illustrator Carlin Betcha has a flair for the bizarre. Her books include They Lost Their Heads, What Happened to Washington's Teeth, Einstein's Brain, and Other Famous Body Parts, and a collection of discredited folk remedies and quack medicine called I Feel Better with a Frog in My Throat. Betcha makes these fascinating topics accessible to young readers, teaching them science and critical thinking skills along the way. She undoubtedly risked life and limb, compiling the vast amount of information in her book Monstrous, the lore, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters. So, I asked Carlin Betcha to tell us where her love affair with monsters got started. My love affair began when I was a child. I was one of those very anxious children who was scared of their own shadow. And my father became determined to get me over my anxiety. So he told me monster stories. And there was a different monster every night. But they were, they were friendly monsters. And I think it was his own form of exposure therapy where he was slowly trying to introduce fear to me. Because, you know, one of the wonderful things about monster stories and fairy tales, too, is that it gives a safe place for children, you know, if if they're anxious like I was, to confront something scary on a small level. A book and a movie can always be shut off versus real life cannot. So it's almost like training for the scary things that they'll encounter later on. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And it also informs some of the choices you make in, say, your book Monstrous, which doesn't pull its punches necessarily in relating some of the realities that could possibly apply in a monster type situation. For instance, you go pretty in depth into vampires and what the consumption of blood would actually mean. Yes. I mean, it's written tongue in cheek, so it's not, it's got a light tone to it, but I'm trying to teach kids the circulatory system in a way that will entice them. Because let's face it, biology doesn't entice in a lot of kids. But when you ask them questions like, well, okay, so where do you think a vampire should bite? The femoral artery? Or maybe they should go for a vein. And then it becomes a discussion on veins and arteries and how they work. and What really should a vampire bite? So it's, it's my clever way of teaching science in a way that they don't realize that they're learning about science. <laughs> well, even in your author bio, you include your blood type. Um, because you feel that that has an importance in the whole vampire equation. Yes, it does. Some blood types, the universal donor, they're the the blood that the vampires want. (laughs) So yes, it teaches about blood types too, which, you know, I find kids that fascinating because it's unique to each person. How much research did it actually take for you to create Monstrous? I mean, how many book hours would you say you put in, or were you drawing upon vampire fiction in many different forms to um, kind of explore the ecology of these creatures? This book was definitely a labor of love. This one took me five years to write. 
because I had to interview a lot of experts in the field. I spoke to coroners, scarily. I, I spoke to a lot of people um, who studied pandemics before the pandemic hit. And I remember interviewing them asking, well, you know, what are the odds that we will have another pandemic? And this was in, in 2019. And I remember everyone said the same thing. It's not if, it's when. And I thought that was very interesting because if you think about it, pandemics are a cycle of life. Our society has gone through pandemics over and over again. And I wanted to give kids a way to confront pandemics, but in a way that would not be scary. And so I talk about pandemics tangentially, but not, I don't use the word pandemic when it comes to the zombie apocalypse and how they can prepare for the zombie apocalypse. And it's interesting because, you know, the CDC did a similar thing where they put together a zombie preparation kit. And again, it was meant as tongue in cheek before the pandemic. I doubt that they would do this now. Um, but it was to prepare people for a situation where we are in an apocalyptic setting and what you should have on, on hand to encounter these things. What are some key elements of a good zombie preparation kit? <laughs> well, first of all, you should always have a game plan with your family. I was one of those people that before the pandemic, I got so much toilet paper. Yes. I was one of those people. And then I went out and everyone thought I was crazy. Then when lockdowns hit, I was the toilet paper fairy. And I went around to all my friends <laughs> delivering toilet paper going, to, don't, don't, I'm not going to say I told you so, but here's some toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not a prepper, but there's a balance between being very fearful and overly anxious about things that could happen that are unforeseen and also being prepared. Well, I've heard it said before that there are two kinds of people on Earth, those who have a zombie apocalypse preparedness plan and victims. <laughs> yes, that is so true. I'd like to think that I fall somewhere in between and that most people will. <laughs> well, another interesting area that you get into in Monstrous, a book for young readers, you talk about some of the experiments that have been done in reanimation over the years. And experiments in this realm are no longer encouraged, but there was a time when they were conducted and the results were somewhat grisly. And you tell your young readers, this field has been explored before, believe it or not. And here's some of the results. How did you go about incorporating those elements into your book in the chapter that really related to the legacy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? The question that is asked throughout the book is, is man the monster? Like we have the capabilities to use science for evil as much as we do good. Mary Shelley probably knew that better than anyone at the time. And we're still grappling with these issues today with transgenics stem cell therapy, like there's so much that we can do with science, but we always have to be careful at the same time not to go too far. And one of the, you know, the perfect examples of science going too far is Thomas Edison. He took electricity at the time and he experimented on small animals. Now that would never be done today. No one would allow that. But at the time that it, it was, and it's part of our history. And I think it's important that we remember these moments in history that men were capable of some pretty grisly experiments in the name of science. How do you feel about writing about cryptozoology? Is it perhaps a little more relaxing or engaging to focus on our possible Northwestern neighbor, Bigfoot? Bigfoot was my favorite chapter to work on, actually, because Bigfoot 
he's magical. He sort of crosses into aliens also, which, you know, there's a, there's a lot of the alien news lately. And um, I have a chapter where I, where I basically ask how, like how you could identify Bigfoot and what you'd be looking for. And Bigfoot is interesting because he's really, he could be an ape, he could be not, but it poses all these questions and asks children to come up with your own theories. It's basic critical thinking skills. And then, you know, of course, there's how to create a plaster cast in case you see a big footprint. And, you know, what kid doesn't want to think that there's some magical beast out there that they could possibly find? Let me ask you, Carlin, have you seen anything scary lately? You know, I am terrified of the Kraken because I, we went to the Cape (laughs) a lot as kids and sharks are no joke. I don't think a lot of people realize that, especially in the Cape waters, there's sharks everywhere. I mean, they don't bother you. They have no interest in bothering you. But the deep sea was one chapter that was hard to write for even me because I was like, oh my God, these sea creatures, I know we haven't discovered all of them. There's so much of the oceans that we don't understand. And that was the one area that personally scared me with anything to have to do with sea creatures. One of the things about your book I like the best, Carlin, is your illustration style. And I I think it's pretty unique. I mean, you're drawing on a few different influences. How would you describe that for our listeners? Well, the the process I use is I I create vector art, which is that very smooth art that has sharp edges. And I create it in a computer program. And then I take it out of the computer and I overlay acrylic paint. So it's a pretty lengthy process, but it comes out both looking very modern, but also a little vintage at the same time, which is the look I wanted to capture for this book, because the book touches on a lot of history, but it also touches on science too. So I have to have a modern feel to it also. Well, Carlin, I have to ask, you have children, and as we approach the Halloween season, do you think your kids are as delighted by this time of year as you seem to be? Yes, they definitely are. They're probably picking up on my enthusiasm. <laughs> but yes, every Halloween, it's, I mean, I'm always quoting from the book too. Like you would know what that, the answer to that, if you follow the square cube law, you'd know that that's not, not possible. The monster cannot get that big. The reason why I put in these, these little jests is because I want children to always be thinking about what is possible and what is not, and using science as a tool to figure those things out. Well, you started this interview by saying that as a child, you were somewhat anxious about the unknown, perhaps, and your father helped you through that. How do you contrast your kids' experience with your own growing up? My children don't have some of the anxiety that I had as a child. And it's common today. There's a lot of very sensitive children that I would call it shyness. I was painfully shy, and my children are not that way. They're very gregarious. But I think monsters are a way for children to confront some of that shyness. You know, they're a way to explore their own creativity through and even make up their own monsters. Like I get I get letters from children all the time and they're, you know, making up their own fantastical beasts. And that's a wonderful way to also confront your fears, you know, to make up your own monsters and combine sort of like your own cryptozoology where you're combining different parts to make up something fantastical. My guest, Carlin Betcha, is the author and illustrator of Monstrous, the lore, gore, and science behind your favorite monsters. Locally, we may be short on kraken sightings, but there's a long list of mysterious creatures that are said to make their home in the desert, 
that surrounds us. Next, a classic from Arizona historian Jane Eppinga about one such lonesome soul. Arizona is most fortunate to have a troll related to ancient Icelandic ogres. As you may remember from the Billy Goat's Gruff, trolls have an annoying habit of pulling people underwater. Just how one got into southern Arizona defies imagination, but there he is. Hank the Winslow Troll. Many attribute the essence of evil to Hank, but it just may be that he is lonely, being the only one of his kind in Arizona. However, he really bloodied up one kid, and the story became, don't go near the bridge or Hank will get you. He has been known to pull parked cars with lovers underwater. Hank the Winslow Troll has become quite special in Arizona lore. On a moonlit night near Clear Creek Bridge, a reservoir about six miles southeast of Winslow, you may rendezvous with this creature or at least see his bubbles in the water at midnight. Be careful though, he's waiting for you. Teenagers drinking beer after a high school football game have heard his low gurgling sounds and seen his bubbles in the water. One night, Hank gave chase to a high school track athlete. The kid broke all records, but no one was there to officially time him. Those who have seen him on the opposite bank describe Hank as covered with dark, slimy feathers. His head appears to be flat in the front and the overall shape of an egg. Hank's head is also disproportionately large for his body. He usually crawls along on all fours, but when he stands up, he's about nine foot tall. He's just under the water, gurgling along, waiting to pull you under. But Hank isn't the only monster who's seeking a relationship with mere mortals. Next, multiple Bram Stoker award-winning author and poet, Linda D. Addison, shares some warning signs to be on the lookout for when making new acquaintances. How to Recognize a Demon Has Become Your Friend Song from their open mouth makes you sleep. Upon waking, you feel empty and sad. There's a mark of ash on your chest where your heart should be. Their eyes remind you of hunger, but everything you eat has no taste. Your eyes reflect flames in the mirror. You stare at the sun, but it doesn't hurt. They ask you for the time, but you tell them when you were born. Suddenly, you can't remember your mother or father. Your other friends stop calling you. Their faces flash as missing online. You change your status to possessed on your social network. When you walk past the church with them, you feel sick and have to cross the street. They joke about being allergic to old buildings. You laugh with them. One day, you blink, and you have no breath. Memories of your life fade like a dream. All you see is red sky 
ash under your feet and in their burning arms you cannot cry. When singing songs of scariness, of bloodiness and hairiness, I feel obligated at this moment to remind you of the most ferocious beast of all, ten thousand pounds and nine feet tall, the glorky sclorky scragagog that's standing right behind you. Superstition and witchcraft have been with us as long as human beings have been telling stories. Next, film essayist Chris DeShield tells about two films from the first half of the 20th century that each warn of fatal consequences that may arise when humans are gullible and foolish enough to believe them. In 1968, a small movie company released a picture called Witchcraft Through the Ages, narrated by the Beat-era author who wrote Naked Launch, William S. Burroughs. Lock them out and bar the door. Lock them out forevermore. Nook and cranny, window, door. Seal them out forevermore. The late 60s were ripe for this kind of film, I suppose. It got some attention, and I can't help but think that this was mainly due to its controversial imagery, such as devils, nudity, and torture, all accompanied by Burroughs' creepy, impassive drone. Here, one of the damned is thrown directly into the fire. Here's a demon giving one of the damned a drink of horrid brimstone liquid. This scene gives an accurate picture of the conceptions of the Middle Ages. Look at these two demons stoking the fire so energetically beneath the cauldron. In fact, this movie was a well-regarded classic of Scandinavian silent film called Hoxen, with 15 minutes snipped out to make it move faster, and the Burroughs narration and a jazz score added on. But for a long time now, we've been able to watch the restored original film. Hoxen, which means witch, was the creation of the brilliant Danish filmmaker Benjamin Christensen. In 1919, tired of the usual literary adaptations that everyone else was doing, he got the idea of making a documentary about witchcraft after coming across a book about witches and witch burning in the Middle Ages. It took him three years, a very long time in cinema back then, to make Hoxen which was released in 1922. Well, it's not what we think of today as a documentary, but a personal view on the subject, using dramatic reenactments based on actual cases he'd read about. The first part of the movie is like a lecture with medieval charts and drawings. Christensen describes the pre-scientific cosmos as essentially ruled by superstition, with unexplained events and calamities attributed to supernatural forces. Then come the bizarre and elaborately staged scenes that made Hoxon notorious, depicting popular medieval conceptions of witchcraft as devil worship. These include a hairy, muscular, tongue-wagging Satan played by Christensen himself, a truly grotesque combo of costume and special effects for its time. 
But although the director depicted these tales using reverse action, superimposition, and other visual techniques with such creative gusto, his purpose was not to show witchcraft as real, but to debunk it. In the film's longest section, a young woman believes that the sickness of a family member is due to a spell by an old woman, a local weaver named Maria. She's reported to the Inquisition, and in a painful, tragic sequence, is tortured until she confesses that she has a pact with the devil. She goes on to denounce two other women in the house who were then arrested as well. Then the young woman who originally denounced Maria is lusted after by a monk, and ultimately he blames her for being a witch. The fear and the horror of all this, Christensen makes us realize, is not due to witches or devil worship. It's due to the authorities who believed and enforced these ideas. It's frightening to see human beings torment and murder others because of such ignorant beliefs. The inner titles tell us that old women were especially vulnerable to persecution, but that no woman was completely safe. We witness the terror of a male-run society that is suspicious of all women and of sex. The film goes on to say that 8 million women were burned at the stake. In the final part, Christensen uses modern-day reenactments to illustrate how hysteria, which was an early 20th century term for neurotic and mental disorders in women, would have been interpreted as witchcraft. They burned these sufferers then, the film Riley comments, but now they just lock them up. Hoxson, it seems to me, was motivated not so much by horror, but by anger. It's an indictment of the ignorance and superstition that has been used to enforce oppression for centuries. Watching Hoxson always makes me think of another great Danish director, Carl Dreyer. His most famous film is The Passion of Joan of Arc, Joan being a woman condemned and burned at the stake for witchcraft. After his artistic horror film Vampire a few years later, Dreyer went silent for 11 years, emerging in 1943 with the darkest work in his career, Day of Wrath. In Day of Wrath, an old woman in the early 17th century is accused of witchcraft and flees to the local rectory to ask for refuge. Anna, played by Elizabeth Moven, is the young second wife of a much older local pastor. She tries to hide the old woman, but the inquisitors arrive, find her, and take her away. Her interrogation and torture seem clearly inspired by Hoxon. Then the elaborate scene of the old woman being burned at the stake is brilliantly done and truly horrifying. Meanwhile, Anna has fallen in love with her husband's adult son, who was close to her in age. This affair, and the fear of being caught, and an atmosphere of tension and paranoia about witchcraft make up the substance of this genuinely scary motion picture. We find, just as in Hoxon, that the horror is not about witches, but about the people determined to hunt and persecute women they don't like. The fear in Day of Wrath is the fear of being innocent, yet persecuted for imaginary crimes. It is an indictment of inhumanity. And be aware that it was made during the Nazi occupation of Denmark. The darkness and heaviness of the film, which mostly takes place indoors in an atmosphere of coldness and solemnity, bore some relation to similar qualities of Danish life under the thumb of Germany. In my opinion, the subject of the truest and most powerful horror films is human cruelty. Hoxen and Day of Wrath can be found streaming and on DVD I'm Krista Scheel for Arizona Spotlight. Next, a poem created by a child that accomplishes more in three lines than some authors can achieve in three volumes.
My Mask of Vampires by Seamus, age six. I see oak trees. I hear trees rustling. I talk of blood. <laughs> Odyssey Storytelling is a Tucson group that invites people from all backgrounds to share true stories from their lives in their own words, on stage, in front of an audience. Ana Montanez, now the executive producer of Odyssey Storytelling, shares this quiet, personal tale. So I've been told uh, quite frequently that I am a very happy person <laughs> or have a very happy essence about me. And I have to say that I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, sure, okay, I get lonely, right? Everybody gets lonely. But I never really feel 100% alone. Ever since I was a little kid, I've always felt a very clear and present, a presence, if you will. Every once in a while, I would see things or feel things or hear things that I couldn't quite explain. In fact, I actually thought it was totally normal. I thought surely everybody else could see this or could hear that. So as I got older, I went off to school like most people do and I had this roommate and my roommate and I started having some weird stuff happen in our apartment. Our recliner started moving on its own. Our lights would flicker. <laughs> I wasn't sure why it was happening. And that summer, she and I decided to take a trip to Hawaii. So we're in Hawaii. We don't know where the hell we are. We're just walking through this market, and there's a hole in the wall kind of place there where you can have tarot card readings done. So she said, hey, let's go do a tarot card reading. So we walk in. Never met this woman before. I don't know who the hell she is. Halfway through the reading, though, she got very distracted, and she completely stopped. She looked at us and said, you all have had some activity happening in your apartment. First off, we didn't even tell her we were roommates. And she looked at me and she said, yeah, they're for you. Don't be scared, it's nothing to be afraid of. Who do you know that passed away when he was very young? A child, my brother. So when I was in high school, my little brother died. He was actually born and died the same day. And even though I never really got to meet him per se, I always felt very close to him because during my mother's pregnancy, I went with her to all of the doctor's visits and spent all this time with her. I would talk to her belly in the morning before I went to school and bless her belly at night before I went to bed and have conversations with him. So I kind of felt like I already knew him. So I'm sitting there trying to work this out in my mind. And she says, yeah, actually that makes sense. You just need to acknowledge him. He's just doing this for attention because he just wants you to know that he's there. I flew home trying to think of what she meant by that or how I might go about doing that. I thought, when have I ever seen somebody acknowledge a spirit? Why not give it a shot? I sat down at the edge of my bed, tried to concentrate and close my eyes, and I spoke to my brother for the first time in years. I said, I know you're here. You really don't need to do this stuff. It's kind of freaking me out. It'd be great if you could stop. But I think of you all the time. I miss you and I love you. And most of the activity stopped. I say most because to this day, we still kind of play this game of hide and go seek with my jewelry. He likes to kind of take my rings or my earrings or whatever out of my jewelry box or wherever I put them. And trust me, I'm pretty OCD. So this is not me being like, oh, Anna just forgot her things on the coffee table. No, not at all. So my rings and things will just go missing. And then the fun part is I get to find them in other places. They just show up in my kitchen or in the bathroom or on my coffee table or in a bookshelf, like wherever. 
And this all kind of came to a head when I was living in Baltimore. I was looking for my favorite ring and couldn't find it in my jewelry box. I turned the whole house upside down, tried to figure out where it was, nothing. And I actually was really upset. Like I was genuinely really angry like any big sister would be with a baby brother. And I was like, what the hell? I can't believe you took it. What are you doing? You know how much that ring means to me. That ring was a keepsake from my trip to Hawaii with mom. It was our first actual real family trip without dad. Why did you take that? And I yelled at him. And I gathered my stuff and I went off to work all angry about it. And I came home from work that afternoon and tried to calm down about it. And I sat on my bed again and I apologized. Hey, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to yell at you, but you know how much that ring means to me. Can you please just give it back? I love you. And I went to sleep. And I thought for sure in the morning when I woke up, I got up all excited thinking, oh, it's going to be right here on my nightstand in my little dish. And it wasn't. So I got up real disappointed and gathered my stuff and started heading to my car to get ready for work. And I was used to park my car right in front of the house under this big tree. And I was wearing these very thin little flats. So as I was walking, I could feel the big thick roots of the tree. But I suddenly felt something that didn't quite feel like the root of the tree. I glanced down and within the earth underneath the tree, the very, very top of the ring was just barely peeking from under the soil. I fell to my knees and I started crying. I couldn't believe it. I take it out of the dirt, brush it off as best I can, and I put it on. And I just said, thank you for returning it. I'm really sorry I yelled at you. I hope you know I could never forget you. You don't need to do this stuff. I miss you every day, and I love you so much. And so you see, I can never really feel alone. In the middle of the night, my laundry room doors will open and shut on their own. You know, some of it is maybe explicable and some of it is not, but I always figure it's probably him. But I'm okay with not feeling alone because it's very real to me. It's as real to me as the ring that I'm wearing tonight. Same ring that he buried underneath that tree that day. Thank you. That was Anna Montanez of Odyssey Storytelling. Regardless of whether you believe in spirits, it is part of many cultures that we should try to live in peace with them. But that kind of peace may be forbidden to some spirits, those who may be considered cursed. Here is Linda D. Addison. Ghost driving. There has been no rain for 300 days. It is not good. The evil eyes follow me on this endless highway. Leafless trees cast no shadow on the asphalt. I have lost faith. Evil waltzes in raising heat waves on the horizon. The gas tank has been empty for 200 days, but still I drive on. Shadows whimper from the edge of the endless road. Where am I rushing to? Heaven or hell? Random words hang dim and blinking on billboards in the distance. Even in the dark, 
With hands tight on the steering wheel, I feel nothing but screams waiting in my clenched fist. Thank you for listening to the 15th annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. On behalf of Leah Britton and Jim Blackwood, plus this show's guests and contributors, including Hank the Winslow Troll and the ghost of kindly, lovable old Dr. Scar, this is Mark McLemore wishing everyone a very safe and a very scary Halloween. <laughs> Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.